back to the Darkest Hour podcast, the show that delivers a thorough and loving autopsy of the greatest and not-so-great horror films of the decades past and today. And, of course, we are in the midst, we are deep into the Halloween franchise right now, and this is actually episode two or part two of our deep dive into Halloween 4, The Return of Michael Myers. Last time around, we got uh, really, really into it, so we broke it in half, and now we're, we've got more than half the movie to get into, but before we get into the nitty-gritty um, and talk about evil on two legs, I want to check in with the guys. Mike, what are, you, uh, what, are you been, what are you drinking? Let's start with there. I'm mixing vodka and Coke Zero. Trying to minimize the carbs. Nice, nice. And that, of course, is uh, writer-director Michael T. Kuchek, as always, and our other uh, amazing host, uh, the lovely and talented Vikram Wheat. How are you tonight, Vic, and what are you drinking? I'm very well, Mike. I didn't realize you were a model also. That's impressive. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I am drinking a uh, Flying Dogs Tropical Bitch Belgian IPA. I also, I you know, I listened to the uh, earlier Halloween three podcast, and I feel like I I may have brought this up in Hunter when we were recording. I owe an apology to all of our listeners. I realize that my cat wanders in a lot, and I give <laughs> almost word for word the same speech every time. And and I'm sorry. I think every time I'm rattling something off the top of my head, but I'm not. It's something I said before, and before that, and before that. So you're doomed to live in a uh, a repeating you know, uh, a nightmare world of Savannah, the three-legged cat intruding on your podcasting. You're trapped. Exactly. Yeah, it's it's your only little... a chair in, in a litter box in my fucking office. So anyways, um, yeah. I'm glad that everyone is imbibing good things. Uh, for me, for, for, the, for the record, I started with a Manhattan. Now I'm on to beer and that's grapefruit Sculpin and the unfiltered. Uh, this is of course the ballast point Sculpin line and it's, it's good stuff. So, all right. Um, we we talked at length last time about the standoff between Dr. Loomis and Michael Myers in the diner slash gas station. And the scene that immediately follows it is we're cutting back to Jamie, uh, Danielle Harris, um, in her uh, elementary school. And uh, it's Halloween, of course, literally Halloween day. And everyone's being released from class and we get the feeling, you know, like, yeah, she'll be picked on extra on Halloween because of what happened 10 years ago where her uh, uncle killed something like 10 or 13 people with the, and the body count ended up being. And she's being bullied by her classmates. It's like weird and disturbing that like at this point, it's this many years later that like nobody's afraid of it anymore. The kids aren't afraid of it. They're just like using it to to taunt her, you know, for being that's her differentness. That's her flaw. That's her her weakness. And they're enjoying that making her less than. 
it's also the driving idea of this entire movie is to be a what you know th- these days we call it a soft reboot to soft remake and this movie was doing it before that was even a term because the mo of this entire film is do you remember the first halloween movie here's a scene almost just like it and of course because tommy gets bullied in the first movie we need for our uh, our little heroine here to get uh, hassled in this one and i've got the the frame frozen i see that one kid is dressed like frankenstein one kid is dressed like mask do you remember that of course mask? the toy line yes mask. yes yes he is dressed up like a character from mask i never followed mask by and, the way that uh, was then, one of the first toy lines that didn't have a strong underlying you know brand relationship like it wasn't a great comic book or animated show they did come up with an animated show but that was a toy line uh, first and foremost and i don't i don't know maybe you know maybe that's a ridiculous notion because i, I obviously gi joe and transformers were were toys first but what i'm saying is that mask never developed a solid uh, creative property to accompany the toys. Yeah, they were very much uh, and also ran in comparison mm-hmm. to the you know, Transformers, G.I. Joe, this He-Man, stuff like that. This is literally the weirdest tangent we've ever been on, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Why, well, what about the mask toy have, line? <laughs> did, did you have a, a lot of mask toys, Vic? I mean, you, I was aware are you feeling of mask, upon? I, I suppose if I really dig deep, I might have some feelings about it, but I'm not going to bore our listeners with it. Jesus. Oh, come They're... on. It was a really first-rate <laughs> toy line. You know what? I apologize. This whole podcast is about boring listeners with our feelings. And... Vic, that statement tells me just how disconnected you are from our core listenership. They're hanging on <laughs> every fucking I, know, I do know they are pitching. Somebody out there is pitching a mask movie right now. So. <laughs> Of course they are. Uh, you know, the girl j- seems to be dressed like nothing in particular. It's it's kind of a generic Halloween thing. She has a orange and black bow tie and like an orange thing on her head, and I think a cape. I I, I can't identify the character or or monster that she's supposed to be. You mean the girls uh, uh, that are mocking Jamie, or uh... yeah, because it's mostly three bullies, and then yeah. when we cut to the exterior, and suddenly she's surrounded by children and all of them are mostly just focused on leaving school at the end of the day. She's in a state of high dudgeon right mm-hmm. here. By uh, the way, we should point out that what they're harassing her for primarily is the fact that she's an orphan. <laughs> Which is fucking horrible. Like I think yeah. I wrote down like kids are like, these kids are, are just evil. Like it's so much worse even than what Tommy goes through. Oh um, much worse. Much, much worse. It's nice that from a scripting perspective, it does sort of motivate what becomes this very important thing where, you know, in the in the next scene that she decides she wants to celebrate Halloween, she wants to get a costume, whatever, um, to kind of I feel like as as some kind of spit in the face of these kids that are making fun of her. But Jesus, it's actually I mean it's again, especially just because you view it in relief of the scene with Tommy, like it's so much worse. It's actually very emotionally kind of affecting to watch her and also again because Danielle Harris gives such a good performance it is a somewhat harrowing beat I don't like watching it I am un- uncomfortable for her and yeah she's great she's really fucking upset right here yeah her we, we, osh gosh by gosh uh, overalls well, that's what trips it off. Not specifically Oshkosh by gosh. And first mask, Oshkosh by gosh. Let's talk about that for a minute, guys. <laughs> the history of that line right here <laughs> so, on the Darkest Hour podcast. 
Dick, tell me about all the Oshkosh Bagash outfits that you had going rocking. <laughs> I will tell you that someone somewhere is pitching an Oshkosh Bagash movie. <laughs> <laughs> and that's someone that's someone is me gentlemen so. <laughs> anybody in the industry who's listening right now oshkosh bagosh can it be a board game <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah there uh, there's definitely a lot of you know real pathos to this scene and it's just in regards to the the franchise though it's funny how like in a way this movie these films are always commenting on how towns and people process these events like these nights these massacres that happen every so often what's your reaction to it how does it affect the local culture how does it affect the way people treat each other and in this case like you know this in this window of time you know it's been so long it's been 10 years that it's just an object of mockery for this poor girl who's connected to it that's really all at this point that it represents to the these kids they have obviously no firsthand memory of it well in the first movies they had the house to beat up because remember in right. the first the first movie they would break windows they would dare each other to kind of go fuck with the old Myers house la 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 in the second movie we spent a lot of time mocking the mob scene where a group of people reacted to the pimple and the zeitgeist popping by charging an inanimate object and shouting at it Oh, like yeah, I want to point out how tremendously inauthentic that that felt to me. And again, like not yeah. to, not to dig up this old corpse of argument, but like that's one of the reasons why I genuinely like this movie better than the second one is that like this movie kind of at least is making an effort to exist in the real world and you know represent uh, you know the town and and in a sociologically logical per perspective, whereas that movie just felt totally unmoored from reality uh, with stuff like that, where this, suddenly the town is like a, a cult who's rising up to burn this house and things. It just was ludicrous. Angry mob go out and kill people, goddammit. That's what they, they do. Rock houses. Yeah, come on! Yeah. It's kind of like a, a version of the purge in which you like go spray paint someone's garage instead. <laughs> uh, but circling back to Oshkosh Bagash, you may recall that her bullying is actually triggered by the fact that she doesn't want to dress up like a uh, yes. character for Halloween. Yes. She's the one kid. And I'm looking at this crowd scene right here. She's the one kid who isn't in some kind of little costume. And again, uh, these movies do a good job of staying close to the core concept of trick or treating, dressing up in costumes, putting on masks, going out at night, walking around Halloween doesn't go too far adrift from that all that often. And, and that's something that I've always liked about this. There's never once in the Friday the 13th series uh, does anyone feel unlucky because Jason murdered them on Friday the 13th. You know, or it, it, it never goes into the mythology of that. It, it's just people get killed on Friday the 13th sometimes. Yeah, they uh, really the quickly point. drop the any any kind of uh, Friday the 13th uh, mythology, which is kind of funny, actually. Yeah, you were referring to uh, the, 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 the things that they were saying specifically, and one of them is like, 
Oh, well, didn't your mommy make you a costume? Oh, yeah, she's dead. These kids are really shitty, man. That's why I really feel for this kid. It's like these kids are a night. And kids generally are like that. Kids are terrible, terrible creatures. They really should be. They should be put in cages. Oh, wait, no. Hey, Mike. I'm sorry. My my son Sawyer just walked into the room. Would you you care to amend that statement? I love kids. They can do no wrong. (laughs) I think Sawyer's the worst of them all. I think he is evil incarnate. Uh, <laughs> you, are not, you are not the worst. Uncle Mike is just kidding. You want to say hi to everybody? Hi. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> is hey, he there Sawyer. to collect your? Is he there to collect your bucket? I'm a little curious, sir. What are you doing here? <laughs> like, like my arrows are like going crazy because they've been like running stuff on them, and they're like, <laughs> don't want me stop. So why don't you take your animals out of their socks, and then you can go back to sleep, okay? But they're screaming about, but they've been screaming. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Evil on two legs. Okay. That was, he was interrupted mid-sentence by the need to go potty. Go. Okay. Sleep. Uh, Vic, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to torment your child. I thought only he could hear me. <laughs> I was being funny. The timing is really <laughs> spectacular. <laughs> oh, so like you have it on some kind of setup where like people in the room can hear what we're saying. <laughs> That's not good. <laughs> yeah, Vic, I, I imagined you with uh, headphones on. Yeah. I was just being, I, I was just giving you shit. <laughs> I no, I'm, I'm legitimately alarmed that Emily can wander in and hear me saying something. Oh yeah. Uh, uh, I will, uh, I will invest in some headphones ASAP. Guys. <laughs> <laughs> well, well uh, that's that's news I can use. Okay, good. All right. Well, that was uh, a, that was a classic moment uh, in podcast yeah. history. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> I can't wait for the the article to appear in Deadline. You know, writer producer Mike Kujak, cruel to children. <laughs> that could be just the press we need, Mike. I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah, well, if we got a Deadline. That would be big for us. <laughs> So uh, then Jamie um, seems like kind of she's gone through this routine before to to master herself, to regain control, to process the pain that she's going through, which I think is great because it, you know, just sort of shows that she's, she's coping and she's, she's strong. She just, you know, this was a lot to deal with. The car, you know, pulls up and it's, you know, a little, little muscle car. And of course we've got, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Before mm -hmm. we move on to the muscle car, I want to point out the fact that she doesn't want to dress up as a Halloween character, as you mentioned, you know, it kind of leads her to then due to this experience. Now she wants to kind of get over her fear dress up go trick-or-treating try to fit in with the normal kids so she doesn't get teased anymore but that puts her on a larger arc that uh, finally brings her into the very last scene in the movie where she's in costume just like michael myers as a child oh spoiler come on mike I, I can't fathom the person who's listening to these podcasts who hasn't seen these movies. So like, who's like, God damn it! I'll, I'll listen to the, these three drunk dudes talk about this movie for four hours and then I'm going to watch it. <laughs> what could go wrong? Yeah. <laughs> The uh, thing about this muscle car is it, in, it involves a character who we never see again. So the girl in the car, I believe, is Lindsay. Is that correct? Uh, well, that's not the name of the character in the next movie. I don't think it's supposed to be the same character, if that's what you're getting okay. at. Okay. 
Well, that was because that was certainly the connection that I drew. And it seems like you leapt from that character to this other one. And it was just interesting because, again, I haven't seen Halloween 5 in many years. But that was immediately when I saw her in the car, I was like, wait, is that the girl from Halloween 5? And I did some poking around and it wasn't her. Then I wondered if there was some connection to the actress or something. All right. I feel like it's more of a, you know, like, let's let's do more with a character like that. Or, you know, like they're looking yeah. at this movie and, and what to continue or what to expand. Or maybe it's just a complete coincidence. But they're, they're similar in their, you know, like demeanor and style and everything. And, and so there's just – but there's a lot more of a payoff in the next movie with that character. <laughs> I'm a little baffled by the choice behind this character because we establish her. She's got her car. Uh, she's quirkier and funnier, and she's a little more rock and roll, especially in comparison to, yep. uh, you know, the yeah, our, our actual one of our leads, who's very, uh, you know, she she looks like, you know, she's very polished mm-hmm. in a way. She's very prim. She's very preppy-ish. Lindsay is kind of like the the cool friend. And this seems like a very clear establishing scene. And then we never see this character again, which is absurd to me. And and it kind of breaks the slasher standard beats where every character that we meet in Act 1 has to eventually live or die. Yeah, you, like, cast this character. Like, you you know, everybody working on the production, you know, they know we we need this girl. And, and, and like, somebody, the script supervisor, somebody has to be like, so sh- what happens to that character? And they're just like, ah, don't worry about it. <laughs> or yeah, was something I, shot I, I, and cut? I don't know. Or at least written and cut. I, I have to wonder because otherwise it would be bizarre if it was production wrap for this character after this little driving scene and that's it. Because, yeah, she, she is kind of interesting. She's she's cute and she's funny and I'm like, okay, yeah, let's let's see where this character goes. I want to yeah, say that this the character, character goes in the next straight up. called – Tina, uh, I want to say that. Oh, you're right. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's what it is. I'll say that Lindsay might have just fucked off to the same bar where that goofy redheaded guy uh, <laughs> went off. <laughs> right, Thirteenth Part Two. It's the Survivors Club. <laughs> I do have to say, I, I love that aspect of these movies that it should be somewhat of a roulette wheel. Like, I don't believe that the Roger Ebert's law of economy of characters should always be in effect. Where you know, for every starting point, there must be an end point. Every character must have uh, a purpose, and thus you can deduce what the movie is going to do with them. I, I like that there's an element of randomness. Because obviously that's a lot more like real life. Uh, I went to Rotten Tomatoes, which has a twenty nine percent score. It's brutal. Uh, yeah, a little I don't brutal. think that's um, I'm in the I'm in the tank for this movie. You know, just mm-hmm. along like in a general sense along those lines. I think that having just seen five and in this one, there's just an overall like maybe this is a damning with faint praise kind of a comment, but there's an mm-hmm. overall level of uh, coherence and competence to these films that is in uh, stark contrast to the Friday the 13th films. Like, they're larger, they're more ambitious, there's more uh, storylines and characters and more, you know, logical plot lines. And you could say that a lot of that is... We used to damn uh, movies with, like, comments of, oh, that's very much like TV at that time, you know, before the golden Mm -hmm. age of TV. And I, I think you could say that these movies have that 
sort of with four and five. We're sort of sliding into what we might have called at the time the mediocrity of network television in in some ways. You know, I think that there's also just like a workmanlike precision and, you know, they, they communicate what's going on with the characters, like from B to B, and you're following everybody's little story. And it's not so almost like Friday the 13th movies are just so pure in their simplicity. Like it's just you're sort of watching a couple mess around and go somewhere they shouldn't and get horny and get distracted and they get murdered. It's almost like uh, a documentary in some ways where these are much, <laughs> you know, well, I mean, you know, like a, or, or a reality show. But these are more traditional narratives, you know, in a lot of ways. And, uh, you know, some people don't like that, but I think that it's fine. I, I don't, I don't, I think that it's not necessarily a negative that we're in a more conventional world with this, with this franchise. I just formulated a theory. Here's my theory. Ready for the theory? Yes. The theory is due to the fact that the Friday the 13th movies largely took place or were shot out in wilderness sets uh, away from civilization. Way more drugs. Like on the, the production level. Yes. Mm-hmm. Whereas these films are in civilization, don't have big stars where you can insulate that quite as much. And also there are stronger hands on the tiller of the uh, tiller on the till. No, tiller. No, tiller. Yeah. Of this, <laughs> yeah, tiller, <laughs> of this franchise, because one through three, we have Carpenter and Deborah Hill. And from four on, we have Mustafa Akkad. And then in the remakes, we have Rob Zombie. This is like the more conventional establishment answer to Friday the 13th. Whereas, like, I think it's fair to say that beyond Halloween one, which is like the quintessence of an American independent film, this film quickly became much more of a what some, you sometimes call a fastball down the middle sort of a thing. Whereas I think mm-hmm. that weirdly enough, like, I don't know what this says about Paramount as a studio because they were involved from the beginning, but like, there's a much more indie, quirky, you know, fuck this, who cares? Like, let's throw a little money and some no name director at it and see what happens, you know, kind of a approach to Friday the 13th. Whereas these are much more like, we're trying to be real movies here. And that's yeah. their answer to that series. I think that's true. And I think what I, the other thing I would say, in addition to the presence of Mustafa Akkad, is when you get back to this iteration of it in particular, when you talk about four and five, number one, there's a reason that these are the ones that air in perpetuity on AMC. And it's not just, I'm sure there's all kinds of business reasons that go into that, but they are eminently watchable. You can put them on in the middle. You sort of know what's going on and you have Donald Pleasance. There is no equivalent to uh, uh, his performance of Dr. Loomis in any of the Friday the 13th movies. Like he is a steadying presence, a veteran actor who's giving a real performance I don't know that matters that that lifts it up a little bit. Yeah, yeah these, are, Friday, these are real movies by, you know, a certain well, uh, vernacular. By Friday the 13th tried to introduce an element like that with Tommy Jarvis, a uniting character to take us through the franchise and Man, but I you, you know they Creighton Duke Well, apparently that's in development. I I don't know if that's wishful thinking on the producer's part. Well, we'll find out. I would love to see more Creighton do. But, yeah, they introduced Tommy Jarvis as kind of their series version of like a Laurie Strode type character. But – 
John, as you pointed out, they try to do the same thing, and it goes completely in, in this bonkers direction with five. He goes from a kid to just this coked-out fucking slasher movie to six, which is obviously the one of the best of this franchise, but also I, I would say he's almost marginal to because the sheriff's daughter in that movie completely takes those scenes, man. Yeah. Not the sheriff's daughter in Halloween 4, who we're getting ready to get to, if I'm <laughs> yeah. not. Uh, in fact, we are. Sheriff I Meeker's have, daughter. Have, Sheriff Meeker's daughter. I would say that uh, of these two franchises, the sheriff's daughter in Friday the 13th is uh, a more interesting character than the one here. I mean, she's okay, and this she's hot, is- but... Yeah, uh, she's the quintessence of '80s hot, though. This this yeah. sheriff's Me- sheriff Meeker's daughter. I mean, she like she definitely looks like she just walked out of a Aerosmith video, or you know, at least a ZZ Top video, or yeah, I don't know. Like, we have to go to the store if you're going to talk about fashion nightmares. I'm going to talk about the employee outfit that they're asked to wear. It's weird, stripy. They look like they're working at a pharmacy. Or, yeah, you're right. They're like in a Huey, Newis, Huey Lewis and the News uh, video. I was completely thrown off by the interior of the of the store because I did not know what we were in at first. Mm-hmm. It seems like the 80s idea of a Los Angeles hair salon because we have the girl in this weird jacket and she's stacking things next to a VO5 shampoo things. <laughs> and I'm like, where are we? And then we cut to this guy who apparently turns out to be the erstwhile boyfriend and it was only then that I was able to surmise oh right this is the love interest and there's a guy and this is apparently a local store in rural Haddonfield, Illinois the 80s have caught up to even Haddonfield. This place is pure concentrated 80s cheese man oh speaking of friends who are established and then vanish the blonde guy this guy with mm-hmm. the bl- who walks up and hits on uh, uh, is it Kelly the blonde mullet guy with yes. the purple jacket the friend uh, right this movie definitely has a, a larger scope than again the Friday the Thirteenth films because yeah in this universe we too just have more characters and a larger tapestry and like it it, it really isn't so one plus one equals two where okay here's this character they obviously are going to die at some point, even though right. Friday, you know, one of the, the best things that we continually remark upon about uh, part two of the Friday series is that, yes, half the cast just kind of go to the bar and, and don't get, you know, dealt with uh, by Jason. But for the most part, like 90% of characters in the Friday the 13th movie, if they get a line, Jason's going to kill them. Name another slasher film in which we meet not one but multiple teenaged characters who are friends of our leads who get a scene and then vanish. They're not dealt with. They're not resolved. They don't do anything. They just kind of have a scene and go away. I can't think of another one. And I don't know if that's what – if it adds to it like, John, you're talking about or if it just feels like breaking the law of character uh, – oh, oh yeah, here's the line. Brady is giving him a hard time for not – macking on this chick and he says don't rush me brady timing's got to be primo (laughs) (laughs) Ah, 
That's awesome. Timing's got to be primo. Is Spicoli in Haddonfield? Is that what's happening? Oh, dude. It's like a concentrated lump of radioactive 80s landed, <laughs> la- and a meteor of it landed in the middle of this other, otherwise a sleepy little rural town where it's just like fields and rednecks and the football team is called the Huskers. And But you have this weird little chunk of Los Angeles circa 1988 plopped down into the middle of Main Street. It's very odd. It's very strange. Yeah, this is another, like, we know that most of these films, of course, are not shot on location in Illinois. Um, It was shot in uh, Salt Lake City. Yeah, which is odd because, yeah, generally they have a a L.A. vibe, like the Halloween series, for sure. I mean, it's some of the Jason movies. What's weird, though, is advancing within the scene, we find that the store with the VO5 and the weird Gonzo Mm -hmm. Huey Lewis outfits this is where they sell the costumes in this town, the Halloween costumes. Well, now you have, have to place. assume on some level, I mean, we can't double back right at the second, but could this be the updated version of the same store that Michael broke into in the first place? And that would be a radical reinvention because consider that in the first movie, uh, Michael also stole from the same store rope and knives it's like right. for, from this place you, you would steal uh, uh william shatner mask uh vo5 hairspray and uh converse high tops <laughs> <laughs> that is true but um i think that one more serious point to make here is that she's drawn almost unerringly to this uh clown costume and she says rachel i found the perfect costume come mm-hmm. see and i think there is something creepy about that because yeah. you know she doesn't know i don't i have i'm confident that this 9 year old girl doesn't know the costume that michael was wearing uh in 19 um I don't know, 72 or 73 or whenever he uh, stabbed his Mm -hmm. sister. Except that she gets a vision of him in his clown costume when she puts it on for the first time. I I think what this scene is doing is setting up this dichotomy between the pull of her blood relatives versus her relationship with her adopted family. Mm-hmm. And th- which is really what we're seeing play out throughout the course of this movie is that, I mean, you know, uh, Jamie really is, she's the, the Maltese Falcon. She's the MacGuffin. She's the thing that everybody wants. And you've got Ellie on one side and Michael on the other uh, sort of arguing to see who deserves her more, who who's uh, going to win, win that MacGuffin. And you really establish that in this scene, which also, by the way, really pays off that we've set up this her hallucinations, her inability to distinguish reality from fantasy, which also ties into the genetics and stuff that are sort of tied into it. Because I think and I wonder what you guys think of this. Michael Myers really is in this scene, isn't he? Yes, yes. Yes, he's here. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. so she's hallucinated him up to this point, but now when we see him, she assumes that it is in fact another one of her sort of waking nightmares. That's very interesting. Yeah, which is a really slick game to play on the movie's part, I will say. She can actually look at the actual killer standing in front of her and think, oh no, that's just a nightmare. Don't be silly. They're trying to be interesting. They don't always succeed, but like there's just stuff where, like, yeah, that could be what we've seen a thousand times before but like no we we have like a we're playing games with the audience in every scene Mm -hmm. in this movie and i think that that just adds a weird little intrigue like that that you don't see in uh you know random 80s slasher number seven there's two things that 
confused me about this scene. And the one is, for one thing, he doesn't instantly murder this little girl. He spends a giant amount of time in uh, late act two, act three, chasing this little girl around, presumably intent on her death. But right here, when he's standing here, she's right there. He, he just pieces out. He doesn't murder her. He doesn't attack anybody. Oh, yeah. And so this is where he grabs the mask with his burned Freddy hand, which he's going to have for a couple of movies. And as Vic alluded to, she puts on the costume and she sees a young Michael wearing a, a very similar costume and is alarmed. And then he's right behind her and he's putting on the mask. She screams and he uh, watches her back into a mirror, which breaks. He does a lot of just sort of observing and skulking around and picking his shots. And uh, honestly, I think that that actually becomes a coherent and cohesive take on his methodology that uh, I don't I don't know if they're going to continue it beyond part five, but I think it's interesting and distinctive. Well, I should bring up the other thing that confused me about this scene. And that's the fact that in Haddonfield, Illinois, they apparently have an entire Myers section where in their costume array, they not only have the classic mask of this killer who murdered a dozen plus people 10 years ago, but also the little clown costume of when he was a boy and murdered his his sister. It's uh, extraordinarily convenient to the, the movie's uh, wardrobing of these characters. Is it the exact same costume? Like the clown costume, I mean? Is it the exact same costume? I think it's costume? similar. I don't think it's Yeah, same. I don't think so. Yeah. I would say that a clown costume is generic enough that I buy it. I get it. But the fact that they've got this... Like, if Jason Voorhees murdered, like, a dozen people in your little town, would you really be... Well, I don't know. Wait a minute. I was about to say hockey masks, but then, you know, what's the goalie going to play if you know, I'm going to wear in the Huskers? Yeah, yeah, that's true. All right. Well... All right. Forget about that. Well, I think it's a valid point, but I think that this series has always, you know, rightly or wrongly suggested that there's an element of culture that is cashing in or, you know, like there's there's a you could call it a crassness to it. But I don't I, I buy that like there's. They're selling those masks. And also, it's 10 years later. I mean, that's yeah. a, that's an epoch. I mean, that it could be ironic by now. You know, maybe the first three years, they were, like, not selling them. But by year five or six after the last yeah. spree, like, I, I bet retailers would be like, eh, I think we can make some money selling those masks again. You said it in the scene where they're making fun of her. They're they're not afraid of Michael Myers exactly. anymore. Uh, and People so, yeah, have so, short memories. So I would think that the tragedy of Ben Tramer would under Line the un, <laughs> uh, the non wisdom of wearing these masks, but hey, man. <laughs> well, this, this movie this movie undermines that as well. I think the, the sad thing is they're not Ben Tramer masks that you can. That you can <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's for a, a Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie. But there I go. The good sense mm-hmm. of Americans is not something that we should ever over rely on as <laughs> the good taste in uh in yeah among yeah uh, yeah okay. I, like i'm not like no way would there be masks on the shelves 10 years later yeah. <laughs> eh, that's true are we ignoring or are we just going to ignore the drama between uh rachel and uh brady no uh, we shouldn't uh what, what are your thoughts on that drama nothing i just wondered if we were ignoring it. no <laughs> <laughs> 
you know, this is the the uh, uh, what's your name, Jamie Lee Curtis and Ben Tramer. Uh, you know, this is the the central emotional core of at least the surface level emotional sort of core is this love triangle that's being set up between Rachel and Brady and uh, Kelly, and it's all it's all in this scene and like. I love that Brady's such a dick, right? And I also, I, do you guys recognize, like, this guy is such a distinctive face that I look at him and I was like, that's the guy from Buffy the Vampire Slayer and dazed and confused. Yeah, really. he's a very iconic uh, kind of type, you know? Like, yeah. he's definitely an actor that seems very familiar. Um, I have one note about him in my notes uh, on this movie, and it's poor Brady. His bid to be a man fails spectacularly. He very much seems like a guy who has no actual personality of his own, so he decides to be a douche and just acts that character all the way far as he can take it. And I looked at the documentary of this film and they interview the actor and he's like this very mild-mannered, nice, nice, nice guy who's just like, it was really fun to get to kiss that pretty girl in the movie. <laughs> uh. I noticed that uh, when the timing is primo, and his blonde mulleted friend decides to go and hit on the sheriff's daughter. They bet money on whether he's going to work up the courage or not. They put twelve dollars <laughs> on, on the countertop. Uh, uh, Brady puts ten a ten dollar bill on top of a issue of Corvette Quarterly, and then, <laughs> and then and then the blonde guy puts two one dollar bills on top of that ten dollar bill. I don't know exactly how that signifies things. I'm not sure that the blind guy understands how betting works. <laughs> Maybe his Corvette will be involved in this wager. Or, there's also a rubber spider in the shot. <laughs> all right. There's all, all a lot of shit in this store. I almost feel like we got an exterior of this place or something. Oh, wait a minute. He does put $10 there, but it's just in singles. <laughs> So rejoining Dr. Loomis, he's uh, hitchhiking and he's amusingly uh, punked by some cheerleaders in a car who leave him in a uh, cloud of dust, which is... Come on, John, that's not funny. (laughs) (laughs) It's cruel and it's just not right. Respect your elders. It's evil on four wheels. <laughs> I looked into those cheerleaders' eyes. I saw nothing but evil. Do you guys remember that there was a Roger Moore James Bond movie where the exact same thing happens to him? It felt no. very uh, like a James Bond joke. Yeah, it's the one where there's like a nuclear bomb and a Fabergé egg, and he, he gets punked in the exact same way. He's trying to hitch a ride, and some kids pull over and... And just as he reaches the car, they pull away and laugh at him. I feel like Roger Moore Bond movies were about like 30% comedic incidents like that. They were like almost a, a jackass movie in some ways where there's just these big, broad comedic stunts and stuff. Like they really went there. They departed from the serious. They would get awesome on occasion, but they were they were the most overtly comedic of those films. They, they really went in a goofy direction on those. Yeah, I'm going to put a stop to this. I really don't give a shit about James Bond movies. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, on that note, let's rejoin Loomis getting into uh, an actual vehicle, a uh, rusted out truck that has pulled over to actually pick him up. And we do get this 
I think it's pretty interesting sequence where this crazy reverend of some kind, Reverend Jackson P. Sayre of Dumont County, picks up Loomis and sneezes into his hand and without missing a beat, extends it to shake with Loomis. And the look on Loomis's face here is really priceless. Mm-hmm. As he's like, you want me to shake your, your snot hand right now? This whole scene is just Donald Pleasance being utterly awesome. Like, yes. he gets so much out of his facial expressions, his looks, as he, you know, the, the preacher talks, and as he sort of looks at him, and I, the note that I made is that he, I think he gradually realizes in this scene that he is not so different from this preacher, that they are both kind of crazy old men chasing something very similar. And so when the preacher finally offers him a, a swig of his whiskey, and his look of, of like, you know what, yeah, like, yeah, I think I would like some of that. It's, I mean, it's how you get a laugh out of your just your your eyes only a, a great actor can pull that out this is a great scene in this movie yeah, Vic you point out a, a level of ballast that I hadn't picked up on I, I thought that it was just the filmmakers giving what could have been just a very functional beat a dude picks him up so he gets to go to the place and they decide to do something more fun and interesting with it but what you just brought up yeah I get it they're both kooks on missions. <laughs> and, and Loomis doesn't take himself too seriously either. Loomis doesn't have a grandiosity to him. Like, he, I think he's in on the joke of how sad and ridiculous his crusade is on some level. The opposite of Pollyanna is Cassandra, right? Like, in terms of types, where, like, the person who's always screaming about what's going to happen and no one believes him. Like, I think he's aware of that. And he's sort of, he has the self, the understanding to know that, like, he's a marginalized figure and he's not above this guy. And I absolutely love that. I think this scene is about him realizing that. Mm. And that's why I think it's a good scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I, I, I thought that they were just being entertaining, but I, I agree. I think that there's a thematic element there because it also, like you said, John, it makes us really like Loomis in this beat. Uh, we actually get a layer of humanity and humor out of him that ordinarily the character isn't given because he's usually running around and ranting and being super serious because he's chasing a mad dog around town. I also like the fact that in a lot of, I think, lesser movies, the joke from the snot hand on would be, oh no, he's got to put up with this gross kooky guy. Yep. But I like that Loomis reacts to him with warmth and humanity and humor and just kind of says, okay, you're a kooky guy. I'm a kooky guy. Yeah, sure. I'll take a swig out of your flask. And they have fun. They have a fun time driving. So Exactly. I mean, and even like that turns on a micro beat. Like there's that look on his face where he's like, you just sneezed in that hand. And he immediately just drops it and and shakes his hand. He puts it behind him instantly. Yeah, I I do totally agree, Vic, that that's that's a really cool scene to just put in here. And it's not, yeah, it's not like completely consistent with his character up to this point. I think it adds on onto it. Because he's only given really one note over the course of two, you know, the first two movies. Mm-hmm. And it's nice to put this character in a different... <laughs> hey, the there she is! The categories that we should see Dr. Loomis in a different setting that isn't him going, oh, evil... Uh. I found myself thinking there's a the scene coming up... Jesus Christ, Savannah. Yeah, let me... <laughs> 
<laughs> distractor or something. Sorry. Uh, there's a scene coming up where they find the pictures in Janie's house and, and he sort of realizes that Michael's been there and like he just falls back into his like Donald Pleasant, Sam Loomis kind of thing. And I just thought there's almost a formula for Dr. Loomis dialogue where it's like, ask a question. What are we dealing with? And mm-hmm. it's, you know, evil. You know, it's just that you find some combination of evil. It's not a man. He doesn't die. I he, he gets a monologue about this every movie. Exactly. And there's and there's just about 15, there's only about five sentences that he uses and 15 words that get mixed up. And again, it's evil, blank, soul, blank, <laughs> whatever. So it's, By the way, it's, what do you guys make of the fact that his name is Sam Loomis and the character in Psycho is, is, is Sam Loomis? Like, is that just a... No homage and, and not much more. With yeah, me. I think you're right. I think the point is, though, that it's just nice to see a beat where he's not Cassandra and he's not, you know, doing this kind of self-serious dialogue. We're looking at now uh, the parents. Uh, we actually get to see another set of parents leave uh, their daughter behind to go to a party, which is definitely one of the major tropes of this franchise. They're very social, social climbing characters in Haddonfield. Remember when he was getting ready for work in the morning, the dad was like, oh, I've got this big meeting with this guy. I need a new tie, blah, blah, blah. And now they're just like, oh, yeah, we got to go to this dinner. And if we make a good impression, then we're going to be. And we, we touched on the last time we talked about this movie, the, the fact that they want to escape the horrors of a vacation in Cleveland. <laughs> they want to go to tropical paradise. I think they're missing out on the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But, you know, and, uh, the Pro Football Hall. Famous in Canton, so and you know, hey man, that skyline chili is pretty tasty. Let me just tell you that the shows at the Agora. I could go on. There's a lot of fun stuff in Cleveland. You know, they would be a lot happier if they just gone to Cleveland. I am. I am going to say it's just it's interesting just from a logistical perspective when you look at Friday the Thirteenth. There are no adults to dispose of, whereas in Halloween you have to get all the grown-ups out of the way, you know, and it's, again, because these things are taking place in these suburban settings, it presents kind of a dilemma. And so you see them, you almost appreciate in this, even compared to the first one, where it's like, we're going out, like, we'll be back later, that they actually do a little bit of legwork early on to set up that there's this very important dinner. And so even though Jamie's a little upset, like, everybody has to go. And I want to touch on that, uh, Vic, because I think that one of the big takeaways that I had thinking about this movie today is that the milieu of Jason is the woods. It's the camp. It's the lake. It's much more natural. But the hunting ground of Michael Myers is the neighborhood. And I think that Mm -hmm. it's not a coincidence that his primary weapon is not a machete. It's a kitchen knife. It's a domestic tool. It's an implement that you would find that a housewife would use. Machetes very hard to come across in most suburban neighborhoods. I, I have <laughs> but it's like literally like Michael Myers haunts your backyard. Jason haunts your archery course at the summer camp. <laughs> both franchises are, are both scenarios in which the parents leave the kids alone for whatever reason. They either ship them off to summer camp to get them out of their hair for the summertime or else in the Halloween films, they've got these key parties that they've got to go to. <laughs> now, like, I'm they're, hesitant to draw too much attention yeah. to that simply because, like, it's expedient. Like, we simply don't really give a fuck about the parents, so we have to get them off the stage 
So I'm hesitant to draw too many thematic uh, connections to that. See, if I were in charge of the Halloween franchise, I would have it revealed that all of these parties that all of these parents and all of these doctors are getting drunk at throughout this entire thing are actually a cover for a cult worshipping a stolen Stonehenge rock. (laughs) (laughs) I like it. I think it's better if if all the parents just regret having kids. And they're like, let's all go get hammered on Halloween and like, I don't know, maybe Michael Myers will kill our kids and then (laughs) cross our fingers and hopefully we won't be burdened by these brats any longer. We can go to the truck and we can tell Cleveland to fuck off one way or the other. That would be great. We could have left Haddonfield, but, you know, this could work out for us. I've never heard of him killing everyone at a key party. Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're, they're putting out clown costumes and jack-o'-lanterns in front of their house. And, you kids have why, fun. That's why, this, that's why this story is just nothing but Michael Myers masks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's nine. Oh, Every it's Halloween, nine. the kid, the parents cross their fingers to like, maybe this is our year. Maybe yeah. they'll take out our kids. Hanging out at dinner bell every Halloween. Have fun, kids. <laughs> hey, you know, we're related to the Strodes. Oh, yeah, totally. <laughs> the, big, you mean the big winners? <laughs> Just chumming the, chumming the water for the shark. <laughs> that could yeah, be like a version good. of Troops, you know, like some fan film about Halloween. All right, guys, we're off to the party. We left the liquor cabinet open. There's plenty of condoms. So meanwhile, um, Michael goes back to uh, – breaks into the house and he sees a – picture of Laurie Strode, who of course is Jamie's mom, and uh, he picks up another picture of her and tosses it down and paws through some stuff and looks at a picture of Jamie and listens to Savannah, and um, he, What do you think about the hand acting in this scene? It's, uh... It's fine. I think... I think it's a, I think it's a little more Jasony. Uh, mm-hmm. He's a little more quick and abrupt. I don't get from the scene the presence of a weird alien character like you see in the first movie, like when he cocks his head at the dead guy and yeah. is kind of spooking around. I, I don't know. I, I think that the stuntman's hand should have gone slower. That's what I'm trying to say. No, they never recapture what they had in the first one with him, though. The, I mean, just the mask, the, the physical presence. That everything that everything is is it never gets quite right again. I know from this hand that he's covered with burn scars, just like Loomis. Uh, Loomis and Michael are uh, not only spiritually closer, but now they're physically dealing with the same ailments due to a shared explosion. I, I'm not sure if there's a thematic underlining for that. Well, you talked about like a, a groove in the mask with Jason that that goes back three or four movies. Well, these burn scars from Halloween two, like. That follows both of these characters, at least through part five. So, yeah, there's a real continuity there. And I know amongst these pictures that there is a old black and white picture of himself Mm, mm. in the clown costume. I don't think that Jamie's choice of costume is quite as accidental as we thought, gentlemen, because she does hang around with this little collection of keepsakes quite often, I've noticed. Something is called to her. So at the police station. Oh, you switched to you switched your Coors Light. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Gonna, yeah. One, one to maintain coherency. That's at least probably once, a good idea. At least one of these times. <laughs> <laughs> Loomis goes to the police station, and we have a new sheriff, uh, Sheriff Meeker, who mm-hmm. will be in the next movie, too. 
he has like this sort of relationship with it. Like I've heard of you, Loomis, and his belief is that like uh, Michael is some vegetable rotting in a in a cell. Like he doesn't take it seriously that this guy could be back. Yeah, have you heard of the police wire about the four dead people in the ambulance? Did you hear about that? <laughs> oh yeah, they were just all fucking investigating that, right? Yeah, one of them had a thumb jammed through their skull. That doesn't hold quite as much water this time around. Although the movie smartly knocks out the phone lines in that battle that Loomis has with Michael at yep. the diner slash gas station, which, again, there's a lot of things in this movie that are, are a little convenient, but narratively work. They do effectively cut off Haddonfield from the outside world. And there was like a scene where he knocked out the whole power grid. It's possible. I don't know why Loomis wouldn't be sharing that information. Isn't Michael just a rotting vegetable? He's been down there. Isn't some dude been wiping his ass for the past 10 years? And Loomis said, no, Ava on two legs and he's using them to walk. <laughs> Did you hear about the four guys who got murdered before people got murdered in the ambulance? They'd be like, no, we should check up on that. There should be a APB out from the police. Oh, wait a minute. Our things are down. That's pretty weird. La la la. But that doesn't happen. Two legs, one taint. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we're, we're trick-or-treating now. And uh, Jamie Carruthers, uh, that's her last name. She gets a compliment for her really cool clown costume. So, mm -hmm. you know, she's uh, it's paying off her decision. But meanwhile, Michael is um, skulking around uh, watching them. Yeah, she not only gets a compliment on her costume, but she gets a compliment on her costume from the Frankenstein bully from school. All she had to do was switch out Oshkosh Bagash for that clown thing, and suddenly she's got a new friend. And I think that... All she had to I, do was conform, Mike. Yeah, exactly. I, I think that this kid is a piece of shit on a lot of levels, and I hope that his parents run over a bit. Uh, and Tramer's son. <laughs> yeah. Well, the more interesting thing about this is they come to a certain house. Yes. Uh, the sheriff's daughter is there with her cops do it by the book t-shirt which i'm not sure is appropriate wear for answering the door for young children to pass out candy but hey no judgments mike i want to say that i i distinctly remember in the 80s that girls would wear a t-shirt and panties and just feel like that was like teenage girls older girls around kids and they would like think nothing of it like i i definitely remember that happening speaking of beats that are a little coincidental but narratively work. Uh, the fact that Brady, like a fucking dope, would come down the stairs and be like, hey, what's up? It's Halloween night. Kids are out trick-or-treating. Who could be at the door? Does it involve me? Oh, no, it's my girlfriend. Oh, blah. It's like, yeah. I'm probably... 12 when I'm watching this for the first time on home video. And this is what I remember thinking about this whole scene in general, and especially as we as we get back to what turns out to be this very tastefully shot yet somehow uh, incredibly erotic scene between Kelly and Brady. Clearly, our sympathies are supposed to be with Rachel, right? Like she has she has been this girlfriend. She, she had to take care of her sister. She's doing the right thing. And her boyfriend has betrayed her with this Jezebel from the 
this weird store that sells all these weird things. But what I remember sort of as a pubescent on the verge of puberty person is for the first time looking at this and going, well, like, obviously I sort of understand Rachel's perspective, but I'm, boy, I kind of understand Brady's perspective too. Like maybe let's not judge him too harshly because wow, she's really hot. And, and it's, and it, again, it's kind of funny, but it really is kind of true that it was like, I, I, I feel like my, the, you know, the emergence of my teenage hormones coincided with this movie in such a way that literally for the first time I was like, you know, that Brady's got a point. <laughs> well, I think it does play very real in the sense that when you're in high school and your first really quote unquote big relationship feels like it's this gigantic thing. Uh, what Brady and the sheriff's daughter are operating under is a far more realistic circumstances that no, <laughs> it's like you're just fucking around in high school. Cause remember that uh, Rachel thinks that she's talking about kids and grandkids at the breakfast scene. And Brady's like, no, I'm 17. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I understand it's Haddonfield and we get married and breed young around here because we have to restock the Huskers. But, at the, but I mean, come on, man. I, I, I've got to play the field to a certain degree. So well, she's very aware at the same time. I mean, like, Mike, you were pretty harsh on her when we were talking about last time her reaction mm-hmm. to being forced to babysit tonight but she seemed very aware of the precariousness of this relationship so I yeah. think on some level she knew that they did not have the a level of commitment where her canceling on him this night might not open the door for some other girl. Like, I think she actually well, knew that it might. Back when she lays that news on him at the drugstore, he really fucking overreacts. Uh, she overreacts, he overreacts. They're making a massive, massive fucking deal out of something that in any other circumstances would be like, hey man, can we push a night? Oh yeah, sure, okay. End of conversation. But I also understand that in a certain way, this is also very realistic. When you're teenagers in relationships, these massive, massive dramas that are absolutely meaningless and come out of nowhere. So uh, on a certain level, I'm kind of rolling my eyes at it. But on the other hand, I'm just like, you know, I've probably actually had versions of these conversations myself when I was like 16. But it's so, also yeah. who's, who's involved. Like, yeah, there there have been 16-year-old relationships that, you know, you couldn't split those two apart with a crowbar. But obviously, Brady, like, you know, she's aspirational, but like he's – this, you know, play in the field, goofy douchebag, you know, and she knows it on some level. She absolutely knows what she's getting into. The note that I alluded to earlier was that I see him as this very juvenile, childlike character, like this very irresponsible, you know, I'm not responsible for my actions. This is all just Mm playtime. But I, I have the distinct feeling that he tries to step up and he's like... No, I'm 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 going to be a man and I'm going to defend these people and I'm going to defend mm-hmm. this girl and you know like I'm going to be the hero and there's something you know really kind of sad and and pitiful about the way that that plays out. Yeah, he does ultimately die in service of his redemptive arc. Exactly. exactly. And that's and that's what they're and that's what they're setting up with this uh with this scene. But what I'm saying is 
maybe Brady doesn't need redemption. Well, of yeah. course not. I mean, <laughs> no, I mean, it's, it, it's not like they never play this relationship as like they're totally, you know, they're writing love poetry to each other. And he's talking about how they're going off to school together, you know, when they graduate. And, yeah. you know, like it's very obvious the degree of casualness and earliness to this courtship. So, yeah. I well, think that you know, in every possibility, Rachel is loading a lot more into this relationship on her ends than than actually exists. It's aspirational. Uh, it's purely aspirational. I, 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 and don't forget too that Kelly shot down uh, the uh, mulleted douchebag in the uh, in the store earlier. It's not like she's just taking any comers. Not that there's anything wrong with that, by the by. <laughs> but you know, it's if she has turned down all these other guys, everybody's intimidated by her. But somehow she sort of set her sights on. Brady. I'm happy for them. <laughs> well, we get some dialogue about that later where, you know, I mean, she basically suggests that she's aware of all of the dynamics involved and just doesn't feel guilty about it. I think that she is having a cruel-ish – she's enjoying the power rush of being hot enough to be like, hey, I can just steal guys at random because yeah, that's that's who I am right now. And she's reveling in that. She's really enjoying that power over the dudes around her. And I like that Brady is confident enough that he's, he sends other guys over to go Mac on her. Yeah, sure. Go pitch your game. See what happens. I don't care. <laughs> yeah, but he's not a sophisticated or self-aware guy. Um, no. It's it's interesting. So after this sequence, we're finally getting to the much discussed scene on this podcast where we get this dude who apparently is a convention staple because people wear this Bucky helmet that the guy's wearing, um, the, the construction hat. Like, you can go to a convention and wear a Bucky construction hat, and people will know that you're this character in this movie. Is that right? Yes, really? that's absolutely true. I looked into it. I love this world and the things that happen in it sometimes. I know. I absolutely love the esoteric fan. I mean, everything, literally everything else is terrible, but that's great, and I'm glad. <laughs> Well, uh, this scene does not do Michael Myers' lumpy, dumpy mask any favors. He actually looks pretty terrible in this scene, in my opinion. Of course, in my this own is humble. the scene where Michael throws poor Bucky into a transformer and electrocutes him and knocks out the power grid for head. Yes, displaying an absurd level of upper body strength. It's it's <laughs> it's pretty much a, a wrestling move. What he what he pulls on this guy. Yeah, we're, he we're, grabs we're, him. yeah. Around the around the um, lapels and just chucks yeah. him like he's a sack of grain. We're really underlining in scenes like this that Michael Myers is now not just like a stranger danger crossed with a legend. He's he's a straight up supervillain. And we kind of get stuff. that later when somebody punches him in the face. And I remember, like, as a Friday fan, we make such a huge deal out of somebody finally punching Jason in the mask in Jason Takes Manhattan. And, of course, mm -hmm. he takes the punch, you know, without flinching. And say what you want, but in this movie, we get there first, and he has the exact same reaction. So, anyway, we've got Rachel being menaced in a neighborhood. She's running around, a lot of chasing POVs, and her, her feet, you know, clicking into a chain-link fence as she jumps over it, and she's fleeing into, you know, bright 
contrasts, light and dark. The lighting is cool, but I wasn't. It's one of the more. Oh come on! I this this feels kind of a forced beat that yeah. she would just completely run off like this. Yeah, uh, I actually kind of like how it's set up. We get some really nice chiaroscuro off the trees in the alley, and I think that the the production design is really great. I grew up in backyards that looked exactly like this shit, so it's like, you know, with the rusted chain link, and we got the muscle car, and just the, you know, the tricycle laying around and all that shit, so I think production design did a great job in this film. So she talks about having a big dog, and he bites, and we see in the background, Rachel shows up in her high-waisted jeans. Yeah, I mean, overall, I wouldn't say the lighting of the street is is terrible it's just uh there's just an insane amount of light it's really obvious that when loomis and the cop pull up and we get the fake michael myers uh or the guy who turns out not to be michael myers and his own lumpy mask there's like really obviously like a giant light blasted directly off a frame because they're trying to get this cool shadow on the wall. And again, the mask looks dopey and beat doesn't really even play because so we're saying that this random Ben Tramerish dude is wearing this mask and he randomly just kind of follows a little girl around. I'd be almost more worried about this cat than fucking <laughs> Michael Myers. <laughs> you know? Because <laughs> then they, they don't fucking do anything with them. They aren't like, hey, what are you doing following little girls down dark alleys? And they do not shoot him. And after watching this movie, I'm like, dude, do you have a fucking death wish? Because you have no conception of what happens to guys wearing Michael Myers masks wandering around Haddonfield. And, like, we have Ben Tramer, and then, not in this scene, but, you know, shortly, somebody's going to lose their life due to playing this little prank. So it's just Mm -hmm. funny how they keep going back to this well of being like, oh, yeah, I'm just going to put on the Michael Myers mask. But on some level, can you say that that wouldn't happen in real life? I honestly can't tell you that it wouldn't. It it certainly explains why all the stores have all these masks, right? Mm -hmm. Like, they're selling, you know what I mean? Somebody's buying them. Yeah, they're selling like hotcakes, dude. Yeah, I mean, like, honestly, could you say that, like, as some teenager would be like, no, I'm not going to buy that. I don't want to do that. Of course they'd think it would be cool. Of course they would. But 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 it's interesting. I mean, I do love. I mean, the tonal shift when uh, when Loomis pulls out his gun and is ready to shoot, and the guy's like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa fuck! I don't shoot. I'm just kidding." And like, and then they all burst out laughing and stuff. It didn't. The laughter actually didn't quite fit. Like, I would have liked it more if everybody was like. Oh, fuck, we almost got shot. Like any other reasonable scenario, yeah. It's just so funny that we're living in a world where in Halloween 2, this guy died a horrible death doing what those kids are doing right now. And it's not really Mm -hmm. acknowledged. The legend of Ben Tramer did not last long. You know, Ben Tramer almost had Jamie Lee Curtis as his prom date and it's yeah he he just you know got crushed and burned yeah he decided to go drink a tall voice in the quarry with his dopey friend yep the yeah ballad it's of ben tramer is a movie ballad of ben tramer you know you it's should start so- working on that spec <laughs> <laughs> they now come back to the police station and find that it is a scene of carnage apparently the t-800 paid a visit we have to uh isolate these characters as much as possible and uh, once again we have a scene of extraordinary ultra like superhero level ultra violence out of this character that occurs off screen this doesn't fit the guy who would stand and stare in windows for an hour in the Mm -hmm. first movie 
this is like straight up hitcher kind of stuff. But you could argue that he stalks certain types of people. And then in other situations, he goes into killing machine mode. Like, I would say that that's consistent with his MO. Mm -hmm. Um, Like, if he's motivated, he's not going to watch, like, fat male cops eat donuts and fart and, you know, like, (laughs) shoot the shit. You know, he's not going to do that. Like, with those guys, he's probably just going to kill them. But, like, he has this weird, you know, fascination with girls and people of the the age and the culture that he either left behind or never got to experience. In lieu of a bunch of cops, we get – they activate the posse. The cops actually call – the local bar and go, hey, rednecks, we need to activate the redneck posse, the redneck militia. And they do. They answer the call. A bunch of dudes with shotguns <laughs> jump into a giant, uh, their, their pickup trucks and out they go. Um, and they're drunk, but they're, they're game. Given the fact that it's a small town and they obviously have a limited police force that's easily massacred by anybody who walks in the door, all of this makes sense. Doesn't every male over the age of a certain uh, over a certain age own a firearm in this town? Let's get them. Let's activate them. Let's have them looking for this dude. This is what every armed redneck has been hoping for their whole life. Oh yeah. What's <laughs> the law like? We need we need you to be in charge and take charge of the thing because we fucked it up too badly. You know. At which point they immediately kill an innocent teenager. Um, (laughs) uh, What it feeds into especially is that talk that we talked about last time of the the idea of the Western. Because you're right, a posse Mm -hmm. is exactly what it is. I'm not crazy about how they shot that scene. They go to town and blow the living fuck out of what looks like a gazebo. Uh, And we never see the kid. The rednecks just kind of go, look, there he is. And then they shoot and shoot and shoot and shoot and shoot and shoot and shoot. And then they go over and we never see what they're looking at. You can fill in the blanks, but it feels like they're missing a couple of shots in this scene. It was, it was Ben Tramer again. <laughs> it's the ghost of the ghost of Ben Tramer. <laughs> Is it the same dopey guy who was following the little girl in the alley, or another random? I don't know. But well, anyways. I, no, I think presumably that's the idea. Is that yeah. in that earlier scene they're setting it up to pay off a little bit there? Although it just it doesn't actually pay off because it's not like these guys realize that they're drunken rednecks and disband and go home. I think it really that that's their role in this movie. That that's what they amount to, more or less. I mean, they get killed later, and they they do sort of help Rachel. But yeah, Vic, you're, Vic, you're right. They gun that kid down, and the movie just drops it. Well, <laughs> it and, they, just, and like and like they just keep going. Like they just keep driving around town looking yeah. for other people. This movie is a really a cautionary tale for like you know tapping into the wrong Halloween costume. I don't I don't know what the yeah. point would be beyond that, other than sort of a mild um, rebuke of vigilante justice. Don't throw rocks at a house. Don't shoot kids. I think that it does prove Loomis right in the first movie because we were making fun of him for trying to keep it under wraps. And why wouldn't you put on the news and tell everybody that Michael Myers is running around? Right. He was right. Correct. Like, this is is what happens. They'll see him on every corner. Except that Loomis is the one who basically, like, lights the fire under these guys. Remember, the sheriff isn't going to tell them. He's saying, guys, just 
just go home, be with your families. Yeah, and Loomis, he's like, you just created like, a lynch mob, Loomis. So Loomis has clearly just sort of done an about face and been like, I was wrong. A lynch mob is better. So yeah. it turns out, <laughs> turns out Loomis was right the first time. You know, like this whole scene is like, because the screenwriters were sick of people saying what an idiot Loomis was in the first movie. And they're like, oh yeah, no, actually he wasn't. This is what would happen. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of ridiculous. So we find out that this this version of Ben Tramer is Ted Hollister. And mm. come on, guys. Couldn't we have had Ted Hollister is going out with Rachel tomorrow night? Like, he was plan B to Brady. I mean, come on. Couldn't we have <laughs> slipped that in? <laughs> There it is. Ted Hollister was sort of flirting with uh, with Rachel at school today. Yeah, could have been working at the drugstore. <laughs> yeah, too much. Uh, so they uh, they take him out and um, they you dumb son of a bitch. The guy says you said to you saw it Myers, and now we cut to a fire and it's a raging fire and we have some eighties panties. And, yeah, they're uh, playing they're playing the saxophone pretty hard right here. Oh yeah, man. Brady is getting it on with the sheriff's daughter in front of the raging fire. Um, the classic eighties sex scene silhouettes, which I think they called a moratorium on by like ninety eight, ninety nine. Can never see that again in a movie. Mm. I'm pretty sure we, that's like a international agreement. It was written into the Geneva Convention. Yes, we get the teenage nightmare of he's he's getting it on with the sheriff's daughter, and oh no, daddy comes home early. Mm. In another movie, this would be a comedic beat. Where is he? Blah, blah, blah. And in this one, is immediately like old business. There's a killer on loose and they hole up in this very real Bravo-ish kind of scenario where uh, he immediately hands a gun to the kid, to Brady, and he's got his guy and they're going to hole up in this house. And not only do I like the kind of Western motif that they're going for, but I also like that this is a movie where for every beat that makes me kind of go, oh, come on, like uh, Jamie running down the alley, there's another beat where the character do stuff that makes complete sense. There's a guy stalking around with a knife. Well, guess what? He just brought a knife to a gunfight. Let's get a bunch of dudes with shotguns and just sit in a house. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's again one of the advantages of approaching this from a more logical, bigger picture perspective is like, how would you actually, you know, handle a situation like this? Like, the general logic or plausibility of, of this movie stands up favorably to the Friday films. But it's also weirdly interesting as a, as a side note that in this movie or even in the franchise up to this point, like there's people don't generally get to complete their coitus. Like, you know, like they usually are interrupted. Whereas I've found that in the Friday films, they usually even orgasm and then they're, they're killed. So mm -hmm. take it for what you will. But in this film, like usually people are interrupted shy of that moment. Whereas in Friday, it's like, you know, as you're basking in the afterglow, that's when you're going to get a uh, spear put through your backs and the mattress. Yeah. Yes. So uh, Michael gets into this house by hiding in the one dude's trunk. It looks Wait, like. I'm going to interrupt you. No, no, no. Because this is one of the things that bugged the shit out of me. He gets into the back seat of a police car, mm -hmm. which he then gets out of when they get there. And I have enormous problems with both sides of that, because not only should he not be able to get into a locked police car, mm -hmm. but police cars, you can't get out of the back seat once you're inside of it. 
Right. Yeah, this is another one that felt expedient to the point of absurdity. Uh, and it's yeah. punctuated by that wonderfully comedic moment when the cop is staying there and you see Michael's face in, I, I think, like a window or a mirror. And he turns around and Michael's face just goes, boop, this is some Bugs Bunny shit, man. It's like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a bit ridiculous. They were hand-waving Michael getting into this house really, really hard and also undercuts the entire scenario. It's like, why would you build this up if you're just going to undercut it in such a ridiculous fashion? What was the point? I guess unless you want to put the characters into a contained space where they can not let their guard down so much, but... You know, I mean, which is really, I mean, from an interesting again to, to refer back to the in juxtaposition of the Friday films. I mean, what this movie is essentially doing is starting with a wider canvas and narrowing it down to something that is indistinguishable from a Friday the Thirteenth film. I mean, he still cuts the power; he just does it at the power station for the whole town. He still yeah. cuts the phone line; he just does it by blowing up a gas station next to the phones. You know what I mean? And then the people wind up hold up in this one place and so it may as well be a cabin at uh, Camp Crystal Lake. No, yeah. no, it's so different. It's more like a Jack Reacher novel. I mean, it's like a bunch of mm-hmm. guys with guns trying to defend a house and you just know that the hero, quote unquote, anti-hero mm-hmm. is going to take mm-hmm. them all out. Like it's actually very different. Like Halloween is is playing like again the Western or the Jack Reacher kind of scenario, whereas in Friday the Thirteenth they're all blissfully unaware until like the the last one or two people get to actually know what he's done for that night. I will I will grant you that aspect of it in the specifics, but I think in general we've been talking about that one of the things that differentiates these films is that they take place in suburbia and that we're dealing with a larger cast and extras in towns and stores and there's all this kind of this extra business going on around them. But fundamentally, all this film does is go through the paces to narrow it down to a space that may as well be Jason's shack in the middle of the woods or whatever, you know what I mean, whatever that that sort of space is yes they have guns yes they're they're more prepared but my point is that that house may as well be the overlook hotel by the time we get there they get the characters in this house and then the chief goes into the basement where he has a old ham radio and the idea is i'm going to call for backup and it works k to k1 calling k to k12 But it works. He gets through, and the state troopers are on the way. There is literally cavalry on the way. All they have to do is hold up in this little house and hope that Michael Myers doesn't absurdly figure out a way to ghost his way inside and start killing them anyways. I'm just saying it's an action movie is really how this this is playing out, this act three. Yeah. Pickup trucks full of guys with guns. You have dudes with guns watching the house. I like that this movie underlines the fact that Haddonfield is, in fact, a rural Midwestern town. In the first movie, it might as well be, you know, shot in Pasadena. It's basically, uh, it's it's a suburb masquerading as a rural town. And this one, it actually is. Everyone owns and or is familiar with guns, so that's a plus. But on the other hand, it is a little remote. Thanks to two explosions, you can turn it into an Old West town. But, yeah, I mean, this is an obvious siege scenario where they're waiting the Native Americans to sweep into the fort. 
you know, you could really look at it that way. You know, these guys with shotguns, you know, sitting laconically on duty uh, to yeah. protect the the women folk, and you know, it's very, very old school. And this shit is straight out Rio Bravo, guys. So yeah. it's like, however, we do get this kind of classic slash standard beat in which uh, the sheriff's daughter goes to poke the deputy, and he's already dead. When she brings that coffee to the deputy, and she's going, you know, I wish we had power. Then at least we could watch some some MTV while we wait. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that and the primo line were both yeah. very almost as good as the which which uh, Friday the Thirteenth is it with the greasers in uh, that that get killed and they well, fix the part five. So Michael Myers stabs uh, the sheriff's daughter through the body with a loaded shotgun, refuses to pull the trigger. He is uh, he's dedicated to melee weapons. He'll drive a car, but he won't fire a gun. Like, what's the real? difference between those things. So for my money, it'd probably be harder to navigate city streets and shift gears and accelerate and decelerate than pull a trigger. So... That must not be I, the reason why he's not doing it. I kind of sold it to myself as he wanted to remain in stealth mode. When you pull both barrels, all opportunity for sneaking and skulking goes out the way. So you're saying that Michael Myers could absolutely use a gun at any time. He just kind of sure. decides that, you know, it logistically it doesn't serve his purposes. That's why we haven't seen it. Well, I would say that explosions are loud events, and he has no problem at all blowing up a gas station and then throwing a dude into a power transformer that also explodes. So if we, not watched, if we actually got to see him storm a police station, he probably would use a gun, for example. I wonder, because it's actually not impossible to find gun-wielding psychopaths in slasher movies. Uh, the Prowler had a sawed-off shotgun. The Collector uses Maniac. an AR. Uh, yes, Maniac is a shotgun. Uh, the Collector uses an AR-15 and two. The rich tradition of gun-wielding psychopaths. And but Freddy and Jason and Michael, like to my knowledge, they never pull a trigger. They're purists, and that's why they um, remain at the top of the of the genre. So, Candyman, no guns. Well, no, no, no thumbs for Candyman. So it's yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, well, he's got one. One, uh, <laughs> but he's a lefty, so it, yeah. yeah. Pinhead, no guns. Letterface, no guns. Right. Yeah, and given the fact that these are Texans <laughs> in the rural community. And they, he still issues it. I would say that that guy is like uh, a martial arts master who ties a one hand behind his back. They would be tripping over guns, and he re- sticks with the titular weapon. And that's purity, man. Michael, in this film, does not, you know, overstep his bounds as a character. We don't break new ground as far as, like, what he's capable of, or, you know, he doesn't change his M.O. tremendously or anything. Um, I, but I would say that it's kind of interesting. He, he definitely goes back to a somewhat stealthier mode than we saw in two. So Rachel is uh, creeping around the house and um, asking, you know, deputy, deputy, you know, like looking around and she, she finds, of course, the corpse in the rocking chair and then the hanging, uh, we, we get some tableaus here more or less. We get the sheriff's daughter hanging from the doorway. Uh, she's impaled. 
then Rachel runs into the bedroom and she's looking for Jamie and freaking out. And so, yeah, obviously the siege has been broken and the sanctity of their sanctuary has been violated. And Brady has a shotgun and he's trying to protect her. And, uh, yeah, unfortunately, uh, this is where Brady's attempts to step up meet a sadly inevitable end. Even as almost cliches, as cliched as it is, I sort of appreciate these vaguely redemptive storylines for these otherwise douchebags in these uh, in these movies. Like even a, even a small arc is worth something. And I I found myself feeling a little bad for Brady. He mostly dies because the script decides that it's time for him to die because he fumbles the gun and then gets into this ridiculous fight with Michael Myers. And uh, he says about, I didn't count it exactly, but around 1,600 times he tells Rachel and Jamie to run, and they just fucking don't. They just stand there and stand there and stand there and stand there and stand there. So by the time Michael Myers catches up to Brady and puts him to an end, I was praising this movie for letting the characters be intelligent, and this is a scene where they don't. Well, Jamie is saying, Rachel, come on, and then Rachel's like, no, I want to help, but she doesn't quite figure out how. Mm-hmm. Well, and I just want to point out, though, too, as well, to, to add to Brady's tragedy, uh, he does sacrifice his relationship with the uh, sweet but virginal Rachel for a night of passion with Kelly. And <laughs> points out, this is not a Friday the 13th movie. And so his whole passion is totally interrupted by her father. He doesn't even get, you know, the orgasm. He doesn't even get the, uh, to have sex with her. So yeah. this is in the wrong you know, franchise. Yeah, I'm just saying, just pour, pour a little of your beer out for Brady, man. That guy had a hard run. I think Brady, if Brady had been in like Friday part, you know, two through four, he probably would have had yeah. sex like a couple of times and then got yeah. killed. You know, imagine, imagine trying to to you know get good aim and level a double barrel shotgun on Michael Myers under the circumstances with throbbing blue balls. Like, (laughs) (laughs) Vic, you cracked the code. Why is he so completely inept? Is because his raging boner is distracting him from (laughs) proper firearm use and and proper hand to hand techniques. (laughs) You know, to get serious again for a second, like when Michael lifts him up and is sort of crushing his facial bones it's, it's pretty disturbing you know like, yes this yeah. is a movie without a lot of overt gore but you know like it's very well executed with his you know straining agonized features and the, the blood you know oozing from various orifices that you're just you know yeah like you feel it Brady dies hard this one, the thumb in the head, a couple of minutes later, Michael will kind of grab a redneck by the jawbone and yank half of his mm-hmm. face off. This is a movie where that's kind of his thing. He doesn't stab you with a kitchen knife. He, like, mangles your face in some horrible way. And yeah, that's, uh, that's the signature of this movie, Mike. That's a really good point. He, he, yeah, he, he, like, he, he kills people with his bare hands in this film. Like, that's, that's the prevailing M.O. It's the one thing that carries over from three because that's what the robot guys do is they grab you by the by the by the head or the face and they just mangle you yeah he's not very stabby in this one he's just like no 
ironically enough, the the only character who I think we see actually like truly stab as a verb is the shotgun through the daughter. So now we're climbing out onto the roof because uh, you know our heroic stepsister is taking Jamie uh, in hopes of escaping this nightmare, and they're climbing around on the roof, which reminds me of uh, so I married an axe murderer. <laughs> That's funny. I, I went to the crow actually, John. I just want to say I really enjoyed that scene. I think that this whole rooftop sequence is actually very well staged and very suspenseful. I totally agree. agree. I like this movie a lot. I really think it's pretty solid. Very often, the uh, especially in two, uh, Michael gets the opportunity to just kind of slowly stalk around, and now that he's on uneven terrain, uh, we, we actually have to see him act like a human being and stumble around and lean into the thing. And in the documentary, they point out that this entire roof is a set. Daniel Harris is involved. They don't want to stick <laughs> stick this little <laughs> twenty feet in the air, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So they uh, they, they built to set, uh, it's basically six feet off the ground, and they had pretty much everyone in the crew circle around at the bottom, just on the off chance that Danielle slid off, that someone would be there to catch her. And there was a moment when the actress playing Rachel actually did slide off, and there was an errant staple yeah. sticking up when the shingles had, uh, sliced her stomach open. You no, know. She's bleeding like a stuck pig, is what I understand. Yeah, by that I mean not Harakiri, but she got the staple rip, just straight up her tummy. She's uh, keeping it, just, it to herself, but she was in a bad way. That's what I understand. I can only imagine getting that injury in. It's like it's like a paper cut. It's like weird pokey injuries like that that make you kind of go, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And then the crew members just let her fall to the ground because it wasn't Danielle. They were yeah. like, she's a grown-up. She can handle it. They, they actually dodged out of the way and said, ha ha. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, they, they do in fact fall off the roof uh, in the movie, if not in real life. And uh, Rachel appears to be dead, and Jamie entreats her in tears to uh, come alive, as she phrases it. Another heartbreaking scene, by the way. Yeah, it is kind of heartbreaking. Um, While Michael lurks around in the background, and she ultimately does leave. And she runs off, Jamie does, to yell for help. Michael pursues her. And she's she's calling around. And and it's somewhat of an echo of the first film, where nobody came out and responded to her mother's cries for help. Mm -hmm. Uh, No one immediately, you know, rallies the troops to defend her. And uh, we cut back to Rachel, kind of groggy and waking up and uh, then Jamie is uh, looking around uh, some fine acting from Daniel Harris and it's a very isolated you know street but then Loomis shows up of course he is there and uh, this is I think their first scene together that moment in which uh, she's trying to rouse what the fuck are you doing (laughs) Um, I, I have to alert you to the fact that I have an automatic cat feeder Oh yeah, that's probably not. Oh, I forgot that. Friendly. I forgot that you're both cat ladies. John, John, that makes me feel so much better. (laughs) It's new technology, um, but it might interfere with our audio. (laughs) Yeah, I I have two like robotic cat feeders now. So at predetermined feeder or a feeder, yeah, at predetermined times, it will just dispense uh, cat food. Mm. Makes it bit of a ruckus. 
my mom used to have an automatic cat litter box thing. So whenever the cat would take a shit, it would uh, like a robotic arm would kind of sweep it off into a receptacle. And uh, obviously, her cats were endlessly fascinated by this. You know, they, they would they would take a shit and then hang around to watch it. The only downside is scorpions would hide in it. No. In Arizona, you don't get spiders, really. You get scorpions. They're little guys, and uh, their sting is about as harmful as a bee. But there was one night that I was visiting for Christmas, and the cats were meowing and meowing and meowing and meowing and meowing. And finally, my mom goes over, and she goes, you know what? I bet you it's scorpions. (laughs) I bet you there's scorpions in (laughs) the litter box i'm like does that happen often oh every once in a while and she goes over and goes yeah there's three of them in the litter box because you know they hide under the sand or the you know the sand stuff so i'm like so what do you do when there are scorpions in the litter box and the cats can't take a shit because they don't want to get stung in the ass and she goes oh oh well i've got a meat tenderizer for that so i Watch this. Oh, wow. My mom got out of meat tenderizer and wild, <laughs> wildly flailed at scorpions in the kitty litter box. Pounded the litter box. <laughs> Pounded the litter box, murdering the scorpions so the cats could shit in peace. Yes. Oh, my God. So, Dude, yeah. that's crazy. That is – yes. Yeah, that's the tableau right there. It's like, oh my, what am I watching? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, Loomis encounters Jamie and tells her that the schoolhouse will be safe, and so that's where they they run off to, and they're going to take refuge there. I think that he is incorrect in the supposition because he has apparently forgotten in part two that Michael has a propensity for breaking into the schoolhouse and jamming knives into the desks and mm-hmm. writing and writing the word Samhain in blood on the chalkboard. Loomis is uh, a little forgetful. Yeah, like, oh, um, <laughs> Michael never wants to go hang out in the schoolhouse, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, he wouldn't exactly. set foot in one of those. <laughs> and uh, you mentioned that uh, this moment with Jamie and Rachel, you know, when, when she's trying to rouse her is heartbreaking. And yeah, because I, I was very able to, thanks to Danielle's wonderful child performance, I was able to really put myself in that scenario because it's like, on the one hand, if she's still alive and you run away, then you doom your sister to being murdered by this killer who's on your trail. But if you stay, how much can a seven-year-old girl do versus Michael Myers? Yeah, so, she can actually rouse her and wake her up. Yeah, I mean, there's, yeah. it's a very small playbook. It's a horrible scenario. But then when they get into this school, almost immediately, Michael appears and throws Loomis through a window. And uh, so now Jamie is again on her own and vulnerable and banging on doors. Michael exhibits some uh, mild teleportation powers in that scene, uh, much more so than because getting into the house, the script at least tries to kind of, yeah, he sneaks in. And this one, he's just kind of, yeah, poof, he's there. So yeah. well, you noted that earlier in that he dodges a bullet with uh, incredible alacrity in the diner. Yeah. He's very, very quick when he wants to be. I would also point out, too, that I think this is maybe the just the most useless that Loomis has been in a movie. Um, <laughs> hey, Vic, that's a bold statement. <laughs> it is. But I, correct me if I'm wrong, but like 
does aside from helping Michael to knock out the phone lines, does he do <laughs> does he do anything except take her to the school for nothing more than a brief interlude of her running around before, you know, hooking up with the drunk rednecks who are far more effectual than Loomis is. Yeah. You know, Vic, I th- I'm really glad that you brought that up because, I mean, you could definitely say one of the leitmotifs of the entire series is the the hero report card. And I think we touched on this with the first movie, you know, the final girl report card where uh, Jamie Lee Curtis didn't fare all that well. But uh, Lo- Loomis is... Your report card, John. You're not the only one grading people on this podcast. I'm just saying. Go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) But Loomis's report card is not exactly glowing in, you know, almost every movie. If you really broke down his influence on what happens and his ability to thwart Michael or slow him down, you know, usually it's utterly ineffectual until at the very end he kind of scores sort of a half win. But he doesn't even get that in this movie. That's what I'm saying. He's, he gets a fucking F in this movie. He could have told her to go to the library and it would have been the same. Like he just picked a building at random and was like, go there. It would be, be, be funny if he just told her to go to hell. <laughs> go to hell. Yeah, go to hell, little girl. Michael and uh, – or blonde Michael, I should say, because that's a scene where they used one of the masks that weren't painted over to match the original. He throws Loomis through a window. It gets very stunty in this movie. John, like you said, we push into a more action-y realm on this film because we have multiple explosions. We have a lot of gunfire. Uh, and if, in fact, in this one, uh, Michael is taken out with – it's like fucking RoboCop at the end of this movie. <laughs> Let's not get ahead of ourselves, but you're exactly yeah, yeah. right. You're exactly but, right. Uh, there, there's a car chase. There's this entire straight-up Mad Max deal where we have the Rednecks show up and they package up. Oh, backing up. Speaking of characters doing smart things in this movie, there is a beat where the Rednecks show up. There are a bunch of guys and they're heavily armed. And they're like, Michael Myers is inside this building. And in any other slasher movie, they would go in there and go spread out. He he can't. He'll, he's in there somewhere, and they will get murdered one by one. Right? Am I correct on this? Oh yeah. And in, in this movie, they look at each other and go, Nah. Let's just go. And they do. That's exactly what they do. They get in that truck and they take the fuck off. It doesn't help them or their lifespan. But but thank you, Mike. I, I really – that's the kind of thing that makes me like this movie. There are lots of little left turns like that. Generally, you understand why the characters are doing what they're doing. Mm-hmm. That's what yeah. they get paid for. Screw it. We're out of here, you know? <laughs> and then they pick up the girl and they run and they load her into the into the pickup and they take off. And that makes all the sense in the world. They don't do anything, you know, stupid and contrived here at all. I forgot to mention that Rachel comes back in uh, with a fire extinguisher and she's alive and she kind of saves Jamie. And so they're, they're reunited here. Yeah, she's standing understanding that the fire extinguisher is Michael Myers' natural uh, enemy. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a mongoose to a cobra. Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. Like it was, yeah. he was, he was paralyzed when yeah. she sprayed him with that fire extinguisher. Yeah, that is apparently his weakness: is being sprayed by a fire extinguisher foam. I would have bought it if she had pulled an irreversible on him and knocked him out. Mm-hmm. But uh, no, she just kind of sprays him in the face, and that's enough. You know, they should have just loaded the. That, that's what they should have done in that fucking ambulance. They should have had dudes with fire extinguishers ready to go. Because yeah, to, he, he has no answer to that. <laughs> he, he, he takes automatic double damage for fire or Well, you know, in the prequel, they'll have him like as a three-year-old getting sprayed by one and just yes. know, curling up into a yes. ball, and then we'll understand. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he gets sprayed by a, a, a fire engine truck, and. It, out of that spray, he becomes the little boy from the beginning of the first movie. Yep, he and rises cool. out of the foam with his <laughs> blank-eyed stare. <laughs> so, unfortunately, again, the movie gives us a smart beat, but uh, immediately undercuts it, and you wonder what was the fucking point in the first place. In the same way that they go, hey, let's have these characters intelligently just kind of load up guns and pack themselves into this house, and then it just kind of undercuts it in this ludicrous way of getting Michael Myers into the building. In this one, the posse intelligently say, let's get the fuck out of here. Let's just peace out. But little do they know that they're dealing with teleporting Michael Myers so he can get onto a speeding pickup truck without their noticing. So, yeah, what you're referring to is that after they peace out, we suddenly see like multiple miles down the road that Michael is climbing up over the tailgate of the pickup yeah, so, apparently he cracked his bullwhip and got it around the, the axle, and it dragged him a couple of miles, and then he, <laughs> he managed to climb up there. We talked about that last time. I mean, if you're a, a, a slasher movie character, like early on, you have certain you know stealth skills or you have certain <clears throat> fatalities that you can evident Like, think of it like a video game character, but, you know, you can unlock certain trees and Jason definitely unlocked the teleportation tree but like in this franchise and especially in this film like Michael has already mastered um, slasher teleportation because he evidences that ability time and time again in this film here's the deal this is why people don't do smart things in slasher films, right? Is because if, if Michael can't teleport, then they just get away in the movie. So yeah, I, I agree with you, Vic. I mean, <laughs> I wonder if Michael Myers, his teleportation ability isn't fueled by intelligent choices. Because when characters do stupid shit, he doesn't suddenly get superpowers. But it's only when the script accidentally paints itself into a corner by giving intelligent choices to its characters does it then have to come up with these gonzo solutions to its own problems. <laughs> well, I like the idea that, that Michael Myers teleported a bunch of different places before he finally got to the to the pickup truck, right? Like, it was like he popped up in a girl's <laughs> locker room and then popped up in, you know, in a, in a cabin in Crystal Lake and then he finally... <laughs> He's like, well, this this could be cool, but uh, i got to stay on a uh, course here. Speaking of cross-pollination, another slasher character who never uses a firearm... Chucky, which baffles me because you would assume that a character of his size would want to have a gun. And no, his uh, intelligence. Small. He can't reach a trigger. He can't get his hand around a gun. Yeah, a small gun. Sure, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a, very, a very small gun. <laughs> I'm not saying this guy walk around with a Desert Eagle, but a little doll. The recoil would throw him across the room. He weighs like two pounds. 
unintentional comedy. But yeah, he is small. Why not? Why not shoot people? But I mean, I think the, the Uber point here is that like Jason, we always agreed that uh, whether he was a uh, frightened, developmentally disabled person. <laughs> 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 or whatever you want to call him. Thanks um, for being woke, John. Thanks yeah, for being woke. Yeah, absolutely, Mike. The new aggressive Darkest Hour Media Podcast. <laughs> but regardless, let's just say he wasn't going to be an IT executive at a major <laughs> company. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure you've known many IT executives, John. Michael, however, um, doesn't have the same cap on his cognitive abilities. Mm -hmm. Again, we see him driving cars quite a bit here and there. So, like, I think that you really have to rationalize his choices differently. You know, it's it's not like he couldn't understand firearms. It's it's got to be a choice. You know, it has to be a stylistic choice in some way because he yeah. uses technology. So, I think you have to you know look at that through that prism. And could Michael Myers use a computer? Could he build a laser? <laughs> I think he could check his email, Mike. I think he could check his email. <laughs> Michael M. Myers at Michael M. Michael M. Myers.com. I think it's a, um, a, a Yahoo account. It'll be triple M 1013 at hotmail.com. No, it's triple M 1031. AOL for sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. He's got a dial of it. It does the modem sound. <laughs> So Michael um, climbs onto the pickup and starts slaughtering uh, the militia dudes and throwing them off the uh, back of the of the truck. And the driver is sort of hanging in there and trying to be a badass because he's got these two girls in the uh, in the front seat. But he knows like he's pretty much screwed at this point. And uh, then yeah, Michael just you know rips his throat off open, and it's it's pretty actually gruesome it's it's a serious makeup effect but um rachel immediately reacts well and she jumps um to take the wheel after the driver is killed and throws his corpse to roll down the hill um in mm -hmm. unceremonious fashion <laughs> <laughs> thanks bro this is actually my mvp were uh, best kill in this movie mm -hmm. and this this was one of the kills that they did in reshoots Thumb through the head gets a lot of attention because it's just weird. And Brady's death uh, is gross and you feel bad for him. But this one is it's so sudden and so <laughs> not to state the obvious, but there, there's a violence to it. It's graphic. Just, yeah, he just yanks half this dude's face off, but it's not played for laughs. It, it really feels grounded. Yeah, you kind of get like horrifying. the Halloween um, version of American Werewolf in London where you see like the open neck. Yeah, uh, you know our our poor character in that in that film that you know just kind of like it's very overt and nothing is left to the imagination. And this is a film that doesn't do that a lot, so it stands mm -hmm. out. Tells us that the nurse, uh, the smoking nurse, and one really got off lucky. All he did was palm smash a window next to her head and make her scream and run away. I she, she got off really lucky, man. Yep, yep. And meanwhile, this dude's looking like the Goodman boy. 
We're now watching the poor um, sweater being torn off of Rachel as she's driving frantically in a very action movie kind of scene. Michael is uh, grasping to the, the very roof of this pickup as she's driving wildly and he will not let go. Again, very, very stunty movie. Very oh, yeah. action-y movie. Yep. None of this shit was going down in the first one. Yeah, yeah this <laughs> like, is way more traditional like action suspense type of stuff. And uh, she hits the brakes, he flies off, and he hits the road, and she looks up, and she sees him in the crosshairs, standing up on the on the road, and of course she's going to put it in gear, and, you know, slam the pedal and yell, die, you son of a bitch, which, mm-hmm. yeah, you don't get any points for that line, but... <laughs> <laughs> she she nails him he just stands there and takes it and she you know knocks him into the well what will be his final resting place conveniently enough so he goes off the road she drives into the ditch and suddenly all the cops show up so this is a, a little bit convenient here as it plays out but apparently we're at some kind of uh abandoned mine or cemetery or both or I'm not entirely sure what's going on, but he's... Uh, I thought it was a well. It looks like a well. Well, it, it is, but it's in the midst of a ruins of some kind. So it's a, it's a well in the midst of ruins. She comes up, uh, Jamie, and grabs his hand for some reason, which I think is a huge, huge beat that we need to actually give some serious credence to. What this is about, and, and again, you can sort of question what the the motivation is exactly. Again, if this is a movie about Jamie being pulled to what is her, her last living blood relative as she's been taunted for being an orphan – and does her, uh, you know, adoptive sister actually love her? Actually care about her like a sister? I mean, I would argue that the point of the movie is that that yes, in fact, Rachel does care for her, does risk her life for her, does show up when she needs her at the school, and and do all those things. But is that more powerful than whatever the spiritual genetic component is that ties her to Michael Myers. And because of, of where this movie is going after this, I think the answer is a is sort of a wholehearted no. And that's but I think that's throughout the movie that's been kind of the push and pull that's been going on is with Jamie and her connection to these two people. And this is her ultimately kind of feeling a, a some kind of connection to Michael Myers. Like I said, as as an an orphan and in particular I thought about bringing this up in Particularly because of that scene where she's mocked for being an orphan, Michael Myers is her last blood relative on this earth. And I think she does just feel a connection to him that goes right down to the scene where she looks in the mirror and sees the reflection of her uncle in his clown costume, her being drawn to the clown costume and those kind of things. That all suggests that there is there is something genetic, there's something in her at birth that is pulling her in this direction. I also think that the physical contact is necessary to underline the idea that whatever evil resides in Michael Myers can be passed along. Uh, presumably only to a blood relative. Now, all of that, I'm deeply, deeply, deeply pleased that the series didn't go in a direction where it goes into the the backstory and it turns out that the Strodes are actually successful real estate agents because they sold their souls to Sam Hain and and they invite like a Voidusk demon and it can only transfer through the children and that's why Michael is going after Laurie because do-do-do-do-do. 
thank you fucking God that we never got any of that horseshit because it's got all the pieces there. You could put it together, but it would be just the most boring film of Mashal. But it is very uh, powerful, metaphorical. She reaches out, touches this man's hand, and what happens? They take her home, and now she's fucking going around stabbing people. So I, I, I don't think that the script is being very subtle about what it's doing there at all. It's just weird, though, that, like, she gets nothing from this transaction. Whatever compassion or connection that she feels, you know, your standard uh, deal with the devil involves like, you know, a degree of payoff that you ultimately realize was not worth it. It's not a Foshin deal. It's a, it's a Regan deal. She just gets possessed by evil and now she's evil now. Yeah. It's just like maybe the degree of fascination with abomination that she has that lures her to keep coming back to something that, you know, no good will ever come of. Like, I guess you could justify it that way. But I I do just, I think it's interesting that she never gets even a fleeting win or, you know, a degree of uh, quid pro quo in this relationship. Like it. Well, Michael Myers isn't chasing her all over town because he's got a teddy bear behind his back. There's not even well, one beat in this film or the next one, really, where you're like, oh, well, he's filling some void for her, you know, like he's her relative. Like, no, she at, you know, only suffers for any amount of compassion that she ever shows to him. Yeah, she gets exactly as much out of this beat as Michael Myers got out of the beat when whatever was inside of him drained out when he was six years old. It's not a transactional possession. It's a destructive possession. It takes everything outside of you, and now she's going to murder and murder and murder. Well, but I would just point out, I mean, not to get uh, too too heavy uh, in this, but kids with abusive parents who never get any reciprocal affection from them never stop trying to get some kind of approval or affection. Her desire to have some connection to the only family that she has left, I, again, it's this is Halloween for the return of Michael Myers. This isn't, you know, uh, uh, Kramer versus Kramer. Uh, <laughs> it's not the DSM-5, no. But, yeah. but I, I actually do think, I mean, I, I can kind of understand the, the mentality that says – I desire, or at least even I feel some kind of sympathy. I desire some kind of connection with this thing, even if it's evil on two legs. You know, she's a she's a kid. You know? so it's why adopted kids track down their biological parents, even if there's zero connection there whatsoever, I guess. All I'm trying to say is, instead of fucking touching this dude's hand and getting possessed by Sam Hain evil, she could have just done a 23andMe and just been done with it. She could have done a what? Boy, did that joke not land at all. It's, it's hilarious how, how that joke did not play at all. Oh, shit, man. Dude, we don't all watch MASH anymore or Cheers no, or, you know, like no, a lot that, of references you, just don't. 20, you know, 23 and me is when you take a fucking saliva swab and you send it in and they send you back a thing and it says, like, you're uh, genetically like 7% Ethiopian and 23%. Yeah, so. What we're getting at here is like don't get me wrong guys i'm not really saying this as a criticism of of the film you know like i don't 
necessarily say that I don't buy the psychological realism of her attachment. I'm just pointing out that it's sad that, like, in this whole scenario of her weird connection to him, that she gets literally nothing out of it. Like, she gets no benefit at all. Yeah. Like, there's not even the sort of, oh, well, the evil mirror will kill your rivals at school and you'll be more popular. Like, all of it is... it. it it, it's absolutely without payoff. And I'm not saying that's bad. I actually think it's more poignant in a way. I, I think that it would be a vastly different movie if Rachel touched his hand and then suddenly she shows up with the Michael Myers mask and she's stabbing the sheriff's daughter's body mm-hmm. even more. Mm-hmm. She's still her boyfriend or whatever the fuck, you know? Because uh, you could see the utility to her desires. That is the nature of this evil is it's it's nothingness. It's the void. Uh, it's soulless. It it's, doesn't there's, make there's, deals with you. Yeah, th- this isn't a personality. It's not the fucking Joker. It, it's it's not uh, Mephistopheles. It's not giving you. Michael definitely gets a variety of superpowers, but he's he, he's just a, f- a flesh vehicle for a empty blackness that just desires the cessation of life, and that's it. Yeah, but I mean, I think that there are some interesting possibilities to go beyond that. Like, I I think if that was literally all there was, it wouldn't be that interesting, but there's a few nuggets and clues that add to the picture. I feel like that's what Michael's whole relationship with Dr. Loomis is about. That's what, you know, again, even his draw towards some sort of family annihilation or whatever, like there is something more to him, Yeah, but it's just, it's just alien. It's, it's, in a place where we kind of can't access it, but you get these weird human moments from him that actually make him more frightening to me. But yeah, so as this one wraps up, um, Michael takes uh, a billion rounds in the chest and Mm -hmm. uh, drops through this well or whatever, you know, mine shaft, whatever it is, and uh, is is presumed deceased. Until, until... He leaps up, murders like 20 more guys, and then he staggers away, finds a beautiful phone pole worker, and puts his psychology into her body. A phone pole worker. Oh, no. Wait, I'm sorry. That was actually Ninja 3, The Domination. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I've mixed up my... Not the, not the my, first time that's happened, Mike. I can assure you. <laughs> Well, we do have a similar scene. If a cop's pumped a billion rounds into you, a lot of different things can happen in these movies, man. You know, for the purposes of this movie, he's dead. (laughs) Did we ever get that shitty 90s sci-fi movie where they robocop up a serial killer? Did that ever happen? Oh, yeah. Feels like such an obvious thing that would rent at Blockbuster. Sounds like the first power or something, you know? No. No, no, the first power was um, that was a, another body swapping slasher. Right, like the, but, I mean they couldn't have that scene in the in the first ten minutes. No, I'm talking about cyborging up. Yeah. If it wasn't Alex J. Murphy, what if they hooked up Triple M? It's like the inverse of body parts. Right. So Jeff, they, the, they take the parts of the serial killer and give it to regular people, and then they become serial killers. Oh, wait a minute. Jason classic. What am I talking about? Jason X. Doesn't he become a cyborg in that one? There we go. All right. There it is. We've got a, a, a brilliant like um, faucet here because we're going to draw a bath, and that's never good in a um, slasher film. Mm-hmm. And so somebody's drawing a bath, and we have a POV shot. And by the way, I want to say – 
they save the POV shot to the very end of this mm-hmm. movie. You never get a Michael Myers POV shot. The only one that you get in this movie is Jamie as Michael or however you want to describe what's going on here. Yeah, she, yeah. The, the evil that she's contracted by touching his hand um, is, is guiding her. I did laugh a little bit when everyone was gathered at the base of the stairs and, and reacting. It's a little broad. It's a little big. It's a little over the top for me. Could not it, agree more, Mike. Yeah. Uh, I, no. I think whatever. If if Sam Loomis gets a uh, an F for being utterly fucking useless in this movie, <laughs> Donald Pleasance gets an A plus. He makes the ending scene of this mm-hmm. absolutely horrifying. I think he's. I think it's phenomenal. It actually. I totally agree. It, it actually chilled my blood really? uh, purely because of his reaction. And when he tries to pull out his gun, he's going to shoot her. Come on, that's that was great. I loved it. I loved I loved the ending of this movie. I love it. I totally agree. I mean, goddamn, the look on his face is he's yeah. half coated in blood and just screaming and despairing and losing his fucking mind. It would be funny if he then has a heart attack and then touches someone else and they become the new Loomis. And this just goes on through history. Right? Whispering around and losing her hair and wearing trench coats. <laughs> 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 so an interest in psychology. Yeah. Yeah. Oh God. That yeah, dude. Missed opportunity. <laughs> we could have kept Rachel around for a couple more movies. What the happened. hell? Alright guys, let's wrap this shit up. So uh final thoughts about this film and like honestly, let let it all hang out, guys. In a nutshell. I saw this movie when I was in high school. I watched it with my weed dealer at the time, and I was so baked that I remembered absolutely nothing about except a vague notion that there's a lot of darkened staircases. That was the, if you opened the mental file labeled Halloween 4, in my mind, that's what you would have gotten. Uh, now that I've watched this movie not once but twice, uh, I, I think that there's some stupid shit in this movie, but I, overall, uh, there's an equal or greater amount of of things that I find to be a lot of fun. Uh, I'm not crazy about uh, his teleportation powers. I'm not crazy about some of the choices that the characters make. Some of the lines are hilariously 80s. But overall, I have to step back and accept the fact that this is basically a soft reboot before soft reboots were called soft reboots. And uh, on that scale... Uh, it's nowhere near the visceral power of the original film, but it is a fun and thoroughly entertaining movie in its own right. Uh, I think that this is a movie that you could watch with horror friends, with uh, beer and popcorn. There, there are moments when you would kind of MST3K it up, but for the most part, it's just kind of a fun, partyish kind of a movie. I mostly agree with you, Mike. I think there are some elements to this that I think give it a, a little more depth. I mean, obviously not approaching as the, the, the first one in terms of, of quality or thematic content or anything like that, but kind of much better than anything calling itself Halloween 4 has any right to be. You know, not as good. I mean, I still think uh, Wes Craven's New Nightmare is kind of the high watermark for the, the sequel that you thought would be terrible and was actually mm-hmm. secretly awesome. Uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't rise to, to that level either. But again, much much better than it needed to be. Very well acted, very well directed. Yeah, it's cheesy in some places, and and there's a lot of things. And it's the the just in in our discussion introducing the that Western lens of looking at it. 
really added something for me. The again, the I, the the family dynamics and this notion of uh, Jamie's relationship to her blood relatives versus her adoptive family. I mean, you know, those are elements that actually play out over the course of the film and turn out uh, much darker than than you sort of think they're going to. And uh, yeah, look, I'm I'm always going to have this weird emotional connection to the. Uh, to the love triangle that that plays out between Brady and uh, <laughs> uh, Kelly and uh, Rachel, so it's a solid movie. I mostly what I really want to uh, what what I'm left clamoring for the thing that, that that I just can't wait. Hope that we can do this, you know, tomorrow if necessary. I want to know what John thinks about Halloween Five. <laughs> I wish I I could have touched on that. I wish I could have. <laughs> It just you didn't really, come up. It just just you didn't really come up. You just teased us, John. You just gave us just a little hint of what you of what your thoughts are. And God, I can't wait. <laughs> this is these are a two part deal. Like four and five yeah. are uh, one story. You know, so right, right, right. I think that it is interesting to try to think of it from that perspective. That that we have characters that are going to have a a little bit of a larger arc than you see generally in these films. And honestly, I think that it's part of why I like this movie so much is that it feels like it, it is worthy of a continuation of their story. And I'm really glad that we got that. And there's actually some fucking emotional resonance in seeing these people in another movie. Well, I will say that having watched this movie and done this podcast and even watched the first half of that documentary that covers uh, four, five, and six, I, for the first time in my entire life, I'm really interested in seeing Halloween 5. <laughs> yeah. I've never seen it. Guys, I, so, I, yeah. I don't think I've ever seen it before. Like, I had no memory of it. My last comments about this film are just that I think it's really underrated and – I think you guys touched on it, and I think we're all in agreement now that this is actually a, a solid film, a very effective and idiosyncratic entry in the series, but yet, like, you know, just kind of competent without being, like, blow you away. But at the same time, it's not laughable in any way. So I, I really kind of think that it's a weirdly decent movie that is not going to change your life, but it's, uh, it's not, it's not embarrassing and it doesn't lose the thread that we're trying to can, you know, maintain and continue across these films. So hopefully like it will just continue the intrigue and the, and the fascination that we have with, uh, Michael Myers. On to Halloween five. Sounds good. See you next time. <laughs>